The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore. Part 3, The 1800s. Free Will. The concept of free will has undergone some hard times lately. The obvious success of science, along with the materialistic, deterministic, and reductionistic assumptions that usually accompany science, have made free will seem old-fashioned, associated more with scholastic theology than modern men and women. But I find the concept of free will impossible to ignore, much less to dispose of. Well, let's begin by saying what free will is and what it is not. Free will is not the same as freedom of action. Freedom of action refers to things that prevent a willed action from being realized. So, for example, being in prison means that you're not free to go out and party. Being in a straitjacket means that you're not free to wave hello. Being paralyzed means not being able to move your limbs. Now, these are not issues of free will. Free will means being free to try to escape from prison, or not. To try to wave, or not. To, to try to move your limbs, or not. Now, neither is free will the same as political freedom or social freedom. This is better known as liberty. So just because you will be executed if you take the local dictator's name in vain, that doesn't mean that you are not free to try or even to actually do so. It's just that you will end up paying for that satisfaction. On the other side of the argument, I need to point out that determinism is not the same thing as fatalism or destiny or predestination. Determinism means that the way that things are at any given moment is necessarily the result of the way things were the moment before. It means that every effect has a cause, that nothing, not even the will, is exempt. But determinism does not mean that the future is already established. It might also be useful to define will. As I understand it, will is a matter of intent. The perceptual, cognitive, and emotional processes that we as human beings engage in when we are confronted by a choice. These processes result in an intent to engage in certain actions or non-actions. So, for instance, I have before me a cheese danish, and a poppy seed muffin. I look, I sniff, I consider past experiences, I feel good about both prospects, and then I decide. So I intend to eat the cheese danish, or the muffin, or neither, or both. Whether I am free to actually eat the cheese danish, or whether I can expect severe punishment for doing so is irrelevant. 
I have freely made up my mind. So let's run through some arguments for free will, followed by the response of the determinist. Since our free willist is making the claim, and an exceptional one at that, the burden of proof is on the person proclaiming free will. So first, there is the experience argument. I experience something inside of myself that I understand as making choices. It feels as though I am making a choice. And those choices that I make are not determined by anything else other than myself. Now, the determinist will respond that you are simply not aware of the causes of your decisions, and you have simply labeled your ignorance free will. There were, no doubt, neurons firing, neurochemicals sailing across synapses, and so forth, all very deterministically resulting in my choice of the cheese danish. Now, the free willist then might suggest that belief is a crucial part of free will. If you were to set me up with both the Danish and the muffin, knowing that I tend to choose Danishes, you might very well say that the end result was determined. But if I knew that you were trying to prove your point, I would simply choose the muffin instead. Or perhaps I might choose neither. My belief, or my not wanting to think that you can predict my behavior, would result in me simply freely choosing something else than what I would normally choose. The determinist would simply say that this extra tidbit of knowledge, the knowledge that I think you're trying to fool me, has replaced my usual causal factors. Instead, I am reacting quite mechanically to a threat to my beliefs. Maybe so, says the free willist. But you must admit that I can be awfully random at times. I can suddenly jump out of my chair and scream, Tippy Canoe and Tyler too, at the top of my lungs. Let's see you predict something like that. To this, the determinist would respond that indeterminism, randomness, is far from free will. If, if that is all there is to free will, then a roulette wheel is better at it than you are. But I am unpredictable, says the free willist. And the determinist would point out that this is merely a practical problem, not a philosophical one. The fact that I cannot pinpoint the precise location and velocity of all of the particles in the universe does not mean that you are not determined by them. In fact, even if that were theoretically impossible, as is suggested by the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, it only means that I cannot predict it does not mean that you have free will. Now, the free willist may then point out that 
without free will, morality has no meaning. All of the best things about people, generosity, bravery, compassion, have no meaning. If we human beings are as determined as falling bricks, then the Syrian dictator Bashir al-Assad or the Ugandan warlord Joseph Kony can no more be blamed for their evil actions than Norman Borlaug can be credited for all of the good that he has done and the lives that he has saved through his science. Or Mother Teresa could be blamed for all of the suffering that she has caused. See Christopher Hitchens' book, Hell's Angel, for a better understanding of Mother Teresa. The point is this. Without free will, how can we say that one action is moral and another is not? People are simply acting in a determined way. And if there is no morality, well then, what of our world? Simple, says the determinist. We are going to have to learn to live without a transcendent sense of morality. Many people are already moral relativists, even moral nihilists. Societies can get along just fine with laws and judicial processes and prisons using nothing more than a tradition, majority self-interest, reciprocity, and the rule of CYA. And maybe that's all morality has ever been. But the free willist responds that we all have this unique ability to stop and think about a decision-making situation. We can exit the stream of cause and effect for a moment. We pause before a high-calorie meal to consider the advisability of diving in. Animals, on the other hand, rarely do this. If a hungry lion has an antelope before her, she eats. As human beings, we can postpone this decision for as long as we like. Even if the actual choice we make at some particular moment in time is determined, certainly the length of time that we wait for the moment to arrive is not. Or is it? Says the determinist. What caused you to wait exactly one minute before choosing? Or what caused you to stop your pausing and jump into things at just that moment? Besides, isn't this pause just a matter of two forces of equal strength short-circuiting the normal processes? The philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre came up with an interesting free will argument. Sartre said that we can ignore something real and we can pretend something unreal. So, for example, I could imagine that there is no Danish before me, something I I often need to do in service of dieting. Or I can imagine that the poppy seeds in the muffins are maggots. You see, the imagination is a powerful thing. But then the determinist would just say that imagination is only one more neurological mechanism, explainable by deterministic principles. So, as we look over this argument... I think we should point out that although the free willist has not exactly won any arguments so far, 
the determinist has certainly put himself in somewhat of a more defensive position. So some would say that the burden of proof is moving over to the determinist side. For example, the determinist has claimed that imagination is something physical. Now that is a claim that we do not need to simply accept. We can challenge the determinist to demonstrate the validity of this claim. Another possible foundation for free will is creativity. I can create a new option. I'm not stuck with the cheese Danish or the poppy seed muffin. I can throw away both of them and I can choose a bag of cheesy poofs. Or I could literally create a new concoction. I could get out my mixing bowls and I could bake something that no one has ever seen before, such as a poppy seed Danish or a cheese muffin. Or I could get out my blender and I can make a muffin and Danish Slurpee. Now, of course, the determinist, becoming rather weary of my goings-on, would simply say that creativity is just a word that we use to label unconscious neural events that surprise us. An accident. If someone steps on your cheese Danish muffin by accident, no one is going to think to call that wad on the bottom of his shoe a new creation. Of course, Again, the determinist is claiming now that creativity is mechanical, something that he could be challenged to defend. So then, how about differentiating between causes and reasons? When I get myself a Big Mac, is it cause and effect determinism that led me there? Did the growling in my stomach force me into my car? The sight of the golden arches make me jerk my steering wheel in their direction? Or did I notice my appetite and conceive of a plan? Did I look through the repertoire of gastronomic delights, decide upon the Big Mac, drive purposefully to the golden arches, and order what I want? Was I, in other words, pushed from behind by causes, or was I motivated by following my reasons? Now, this is called teleology. Instead of reacting to stimuli, we human beings can project a future situation which we can then take as a goal. The connection between cause and effect is one of necessity. Once the cause is in place, the effect necessarily follows. But there's nothing necessary about purposes, goals. They can be accomplished or not. But the determinist would respond with the same argument that he made earlier about imagination and creativity. Your perceptions and cognitions and emotions, your past experiences, inevitably lead to your projecting that goal and working toward it. It only appears to you to be free of necessity. But note how quickly we give up our goals when other, more powerfully supported forces push in upon us. Well, let's make one last try for free will. I suggest that, as we develop from babies into adults, we separate from the world. 
our causal processes become increasingly independent of the causal processes outside of us, especially in the mental realm. A gap develops that allows us to be influenced by outside situations, but not determined by them. This gap is like a large river. The man on the opposite bank can wave and jump and yell all that he wants, but he cannot directly affect us. But we can listen to him or interpret his semaphore signals. We can treat his antics as information to add to all of the other information that we have gathered over our lives. And we can use that information to guide our decisions. Influenced, but not caused. A baby begins life nearly as intimately connected with his or her world as in the womb. By the end of life, some of us are impervious to what others think about us. We can rise above any threat or seductive promise. We can nearly ignore any type of urge or pain. In one sense, we are still determined. Determined by that developing person that we are. We are determined by our developing selves. But nothing else in our present circumstances or even in our past, going back to some time in childhood when that gap was first fully realized, is more important than information to utilize in making free decisions. At this point, I know very well that the determinist can respond to this idea as well. But by now, the determinist is as much on the defensive as the free willist has ever been. In fact, the undecided listener may begin to conclude that it is the deterministic stance that nothing is free that is the more extreme and less reasonable one. Addendum It is tempting at this point to just leave it here. But I know that if I did that, you would complain that I have left my job unfinished, that I should continue the argument to a conclusion. In other words, you want to know what students always want to know. What is the answer? Or at least, what do I think is the answer? Although I would rather see my students come up with their own answers... Here are some ideas that influence how I see the issue. The argument of free will versus determinism is, in some measure, a false one. Both sides have been reduced to straw men, to easily destroyed arguments, by oversimplification. For example, free will has never meant freedom to ignore the laws of nature. And determinism does not mean that everything is predictable. Perhaps the best thing that we can do to get past the stalemate is to develop a new concept that points to the complexity of the person and his or her interaction with the world. Instead of free will versus determinism, maybe we should adopt Albert Bandura's preferred term, 
self-determination. As a middle-aged man and college professor, I have dozens of years of experience. My childhood, my cultural inheritance, all of the books I've read, conversations with friends, my own thoughts, all of those have made me who I am today. And all of this is on top of my unique genetics and the other physical realities of who I am. The things that happen to me now are experienced through this mass of uniqueness. And my responses depend not only on my present situation, but upon all that I am. Now, this may not be free will in the absolute sense, but it is certainly self-determination. So if we as human beings possess this somewhat limited freedom, we also possess a somewhat limited responsibility for our actions. For most adults, it can be legitimately claimed that who we are includes basic moral concepts derived from an innate sense of solidarity with other human beings and from a rational respect for laws and rules that were conveyed to us by our parents and others, our experiences with the naturally selected trait of altruism, and our experience with the benefits of moral reciprocity, of treating others the way that we would want to be treated. These things are part of who we are, and they are available to us when we make choices to behave in one way or another. We are therefore culpable if we disregard these moral and legal concepts. And this dovetails nicely into the legal tradition that asks whether a person actually knows right from wrong, and whether the person has the maturity or the cognitive wherewithal to choose right over wrong. In other words, we human beings do not have to be above or seek outside of the natural world in order to have a degree of freedom within that world. Thank you.